Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. We're going to do something a little bit different this time around. Uh, For the first 13 podcasts on The Crisis Next Door, I've really focused on individual regions, but kind of want to do like a quarterly update where we take a look around the world at various hotspots and take their temperature and see where things are going. And for that, we are joined by Alex Clement. He's senior editor of Signal and creative director at G Zero Media, part of the Eurasia Group. Alex, thank you very much for joining us here today on The Crisis Next Door. Pleased to be with you. I want to start out with Asia. The trade war between the U.S. and China has raised tensions at the market level, but there's another sticking point in U.S.-Sino relations, and that's the fate of Taiwan. Taiwan's new president, Tsai Ing-wen, is a fan of military power displays, and Beijing is not thrilled with that, and has been encouraging mainland tourists to avoid Taiwan and compelling foreign airlines and hotel chains to not refer to Taiwan as a separate territory, instead listing it as a part of China. And neither side is giving in here. We always hear about reunification. Alex, is this something that's even possible for Taiwan and China? Well, from the Taiwanese perspective, it's an absolute non-starter, of course, right? I mean, the island has been self-governing uh, since the uh, the Chinese Civil War, which brought the communists to power after World War II. Um, it is an island that is supported uh, diplomatically and militarily by the United States. Um, the, the tricky bit here, though, is, uh, is that the United States has always done, or at least since the 1970s, has done this tricky balancing act where, uh, in order to preserve a relationship with China, uh, the United States has uh, kind of given pantomime support to the idea of a one-China policy, which is what the Chinese say that Taiwan actually is by rights part of China. Um, what's happened recently is that you've seen both a more assertive uh, nationalistic perspective on this issue from Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, he has uh, domestically amassed more power really than any Chinese leader since Mao, if you will, um, and has used that uh, to kind of shape a more assertive nationalistic view on China's rights and responsibilities and stake in the global order, but also uh, on its own doorstep. And a key part of that is Taiwan. If you look at the speeches that President Xi has given over the past year, um, he's really kind of uh, hammered on this issue uh, of Taiwan. Uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, sh- short of an invasion uh, to uh, to force the Taiwanese to become part of China again, uh, it's very difficult to see that happen. Um, I think one of the big, big issues is that Taiwan may increasingly come up as a bone of contention between the U.S., and China. You mentioned the trade spat obviously is, is, is the kind of the main event between the U.S. and China. But there's also a bigger question here. From the Chinese perspective, the, the Chinese see the tension with the U.S. not as uh, something about trade and what China is doing with its economy. They see it in larger terms as the United States trying to limit the rise, China's rightful rise as a global power. 
Um, and to the extent that Taiwan figures into the equation, um, that's really how the Chinese uh, increasingly see it. Um, so I think as, you, as, as the U.S.-China trade spat kind of continues and grows, and, and to all appearances it, it will, um, you're going to see the Taiwan issue come up even more. The United States has been giving more support to the Taiwanese recently. Um, the Defense Appropriation Act that was passed last week uh, gives support to the idea of, of, of selling more weapons to Taiwan. Um, a bill last year passed by the Congress um, opened the way for U.S. Uh, naval ships uh, and diplomatic personnel to, to call on Taiwan at a higher level. So this is not an issue that's going away, and it's, and it's an issue that's, that's really critical for the Chinese um, and quite important for the Americans as well. President Xi Jinping is obviously a tough leader, uh, and the PLA is a massive army, but I, it, it, there's really no consideration for him going and invading Taiwan, is there? I mean, this is simply, that's, n that's just something that's not going to happen, is it? It, it's, it's almost impossible to see that actually happening, uh, except in a situation where China faces a, a domestic political crisis of such tremendous proportions uh, that this is kind of the way, the way out of the crisis to kind of foment this, uh, this, this nationalist crisis. I mean, a, a Chinese invasion of, of Taiwan is almost inconceivable, but what is happening is that the Chinese military is increasingly harassing Taiwan, right? Bomber overflights and jet overflights have, uh, have by all reports, uh, increased over the past year. Um, so th I think the risk is not, you know, a deliberate invasion of Taiwan. The, the, the risk is a miscalculation, right, uh, which can provoke a crisis, right? A bomber overflies Taiwan, the Taiwanese respond, or the U.S. responds in some way. And these things in the context of two quite nationalistic, three quite nationalistic leaderships, the Chinese, the Taiwanese, and the Americans, um, things can, can, can escalate quite quickly. So I, I would frame this as a miscalculation risk rather than a strategic um, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, invasion of Taiwan uh, type of risk. Echoes of the Cold War between the U.S. and Soviet Union. Let's move over to the Middle East. Syria's been soaked in blood for seven years. The biggest battle may be about to get underway with Assad's forces poised to assault Idlib, the last bastion for rebel fighters. Assad's got Russia and Iran helping out, but it's also got to deal with Turkey, which has units in and around Idlib as it backs some of those rebel groups. Turkey mainly interested in limiting growth of the Kurdish units in the northern part of Syria. And it's not like the rebels are aligned with multiple assassinations reported in Idlib over the past several months. Alex, how big of a catastrophe is waiting in Idlib. Well, there are two uh, things that have really changed about the Syrian conflict uh, over the past, I'd say, year and a half to two years. The first, uh, which predates the Idlib campaign, which I'll get to, but the first is that ISIS has been largely eliminated from its territories in, in, uh, in eastern Syria. Uh, and that has cleared the way for a scramble for power in those regions. At the same time, you have the, as you mentioned, the Syrian forces advancing on Idlib uh, to to uh, to destroy the last remaining rebel uh, uh, holdouts. In both of those cases, both in terms of kind of filling the vacuum of power that's left by ISIS and also figuring out what happens in Idlib, um, you have this larger constellation of outside powers all jockeying for their own influence, right? Um, you have the Russians, as you mentioned, who support the Assad regime, uh, also the Iranians. You have the Turk, uh, 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 Turkey, which uh, wants to avoid the emergence of a um, of a more kind of powerful or autonomous Kurdish enclave right on its borders, um, not only in Italy, but also uh, for in, 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 uh, in northern Syria as well. 
North, northeastern Syria. Um, and of course, you have the Israelis concerned uh, about the ir- increasing Iranian presence on their border just across uh, from the contested Golan Heights with Syria. Uh, the problem is that the, uh, the, the different kind of outside powers are all operating at cross purposes. Um, one thing that, that we've seen recently is the Israelis trying to reach a deal with the Russians to limit Iranian influence in a post-war Syria. Uh, the Iranians are none too pleased about the idea that having put hundreds of thousands of Hezbollah fighters at the service of the Syrian government, that they may be pushed out of a post-war settlement. So everyone is kind of jockeying uh, for this post-war situation. Um, the actual uh, bloodshed in Idlib itself could be horrific. Uh, I mean, this is really uh, the, the full force of the Syrian army, backed by the Russians, backed by the Iranians, is really bearing down on that region, um, and, um, and and that could, you know, foment another outflow of refugees, which of course would uh, have a, a destabilizing impact on southeastern Syria, uh, southeastern Turkey, um, and things could get ugly fast. But the big picture is that everyone is angling for the post-war, and there, no one can really agree on who should be in power in Syria or how and what their interests will be in the country after the war ends. Does it seem like there's a decent chance that we will finally see Turkey and Syria go at it? I mean, given the fact that there are Turkish units right in and around Idlib, and uh, the Russian Air Force isn't exactly known for its precision bombardments when it's acted on behalf of Syria. There just seems like there's a decent chance that those two sides are going to collide. Well, I mean, the the, um, the falling out between uh, between President Assad and uh, and then Prime Minister uh, of Turkey uh, Erdogan was a swift and severe one. There's little love lost between them. Um, certainly, uh, look, Turkey, uh, as you and your listeners may know, uh, is going through its own uh, horrific kind of economic collapse at the moment. Um, it would not be the worst thing from the perspective of an assertive nationalistic leader like Erdogan to uh, to tempt fate with a little bit of a, um, a campaign in northwestern Syria if he thought that would distract from his domestic problems. Uh, so I think it's certainly something to keep an eye on as, um, as Erdogan's uh, pro- uh, economic, certainly, situation in Turkey um, continues to deteriorate. Um, there, there is a very good chance, again, uh, uh, at the very least, of a miscalculation that escalates quickly. And you remember in November of 2016, uh, the Turks shot down a Russian jet over Syria, right? And that very nearly provoked a massive conflagration, right? So, um, so I think, uh, again, as with Taiwan, uh, the risk is, um, is at least as much of miscalculation as of deliberate intent to start a new conflict. Since we're talking about Russia, let's mo- move over to Europe, and that's primarily focused on Russia. I think some people have forgotten there's a war going on in Ukraine. It really hasn't changed much over the past four mm-hmm. years, with Ukrainian soldiers squaring off against pro-Russian militants in the Donbass. Fighting has recently picked up, each side losing soldiers. This thing really shows no signs of going away. How does this help Putin, and how could it backfire against him? Well, when, uh, in 2014, when uh, Russia annexed Crimea in the midst of the political instability in Ukraine, it was wildly popular at home in Russia. Right? I mean, Putin's uh, approval ratings went from the low 60s up to close to 90 at the time. Um, he, it was hugely popular. Um, so from a domestic standpoint, it, it helped him quite a bit. From a strategic perspective, what the Russians were really banking on and, and calculating, and, and I think in retrospect correctly, was that uh, Ukraine mattered more to them than it did to the West and to Europe, and that by really kind of seizing Crimea and then fomenting this uh, conflict in eastern Ukraine, they could effectively paralyze Ukraine between east and west, 
right? The main objective from Russia's perspective was to prevent Ukraine from ever joining NATO or the EU. Um, and by fomenting this conflict, they effectively uh, um, uh, created uh, what's called a frozen conflict. Um, you know, a few, the, the death toll goes up by a few dozens or hundreds every few months, but basically this conflict is frozen uh, in the sense that, uh, that Russian-backed rebels in eastern Ukraine hold effective control over the eastern part of the country. Uh, which makes it impossible for the national government in Ukraine to ever make any further movement uh, strategically westward, either by trying to join NATO or trying to join the EU. Um, the basic bone of contention is that uh, there is a peace plan in, that has been proposed. Um, the peace plan requires the Ukrainian national government to devolve autonomy to the eastern regions, uh, in a sense, basically, to give, them, to give them autonomy from the government in Kiev. The problem uh, for the Ukrainian government is that uh, nationalists uh, in the uh, parliament will never agree to that. They'll never agree to a constitutional reform that essentially says, okay, most of eastern Ukraine can be run autonomously, which is to say, by Russian-backed rebels. Um, so there's a real deadlock uh, there, and, um, and it doesn't appear that it's going to move anywhere in any direction anytime soon. Um, and of course, the Europeans are preoccupied with much, uh, much uh, uh, bigger uh, problems these days, um, as are the Americans. So no one is really paying attention to Ukraine, and the Russians are perfectly happy to leave it that way. The war in Ukraine has attracted a lot of adventurers from across the world, in particular Europe, uh, fighting on either side in that conflict. But there's also the war in Syria that's attracted a lot of adventurers from Europe, and those would be from the Islamic State. And we've seen many of those fighters returning home, in particular with Europe, about an estimated 6,000 Europeans having joined ISIS in recent years. How destabilizing will those fighters be to their homelands? This, I'm glad you asked this. This is one of the biggest, uh, biggest issues. Um, as ISIS has lost its territory, uh, it has not necessarily lost its ideological appeal or its uh, adherence, right? So there's really two issues. One is ISIS fighters from Europe, but of course also from, 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 from the Middle East, right? I mean, thousands from Tunisia, uh, many thousands from the Gulf region as well, um, are, are going home and have been instructed by ISIS leadership. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi actually just recently released his first uh, audio recording uh, in more than a year. He, he had been thought to be killed, but in fact he has not been killed, and he is still rallying the ISIS faithful to carry out attacks in their home countries. So the ISIS returnees can pose a big problem uh, in terms of terrorism and security in Europe, but also, uh, as I mentioned, in the Middle East and also in Southeast Asia. There are a number of recruits from, uh, from, uh, from the Philippines, from Indonesia, and from Malaysia as well. Um, and it doesn't take many uh, terrorists, as we know, to cause a, um, a significant, uh, to have a significant impact. The other issue is that there are a number of people in uh, countries around the world who are sympathetic to ISIS. Right? There's a recent report that said they found uh, ISIS supporters uh, in as many as 96 different countries around the world. Right? These are not people who have fought in Syria, not people who have fought in Iraq. These are disaffected young people, disaffected young Muslims who have some kind of um, uh, um, affection for the ideas of ISIS. Um, so those people can also be rallied to carry out lone wolf attacks um, or, or other operations on behalf of the organization. So I think the impact of ISIS as a territorial unit is, is now you know, pretty negligible, uh, but the impact of ISIS as an ideological brand that attracts um, disaffected young people uh, in uh, many corners of the world is something that we'll continue to have to watch.
You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're taking a look at conflicts around the world with Alex Clement, Senior Editor of Signal and Creative Director at G Zero Media at the Eurasia Group. Let's move over to Latin America. Venezuela's crisis has deepened in 2018, most recently an assassination attempt with drones on President Nicolas Maduro. Maduro has cracked down on dissidents with hundreds reported killed and brutal economic conditions have resulted in a massive population exodus desperate for food and medicine. That's really impacting Venezuela's neighbors, too. Brazil sending troops to guard its border with Venezuela, and Colombia has one million Venezuelan refugees. Uh, what kind of stability issues are facing not just Venezuela, but the rest of South America because of this crisis? Uh, it, it's, uh, the numbers are absolutely staggering. Uh, I mean, more than two million Venezuelans have left in the past four years. That's seven, eight percent of the population. Um, and as you mentioned, they have gone largely to Colombia, uh, but from Colombia they've attempted to go onwards to Peru and Ecuador. The Peruvians have imposed more border controls. The Ecuadorians are talking about the same. The Brazilians have sent troops to the border. Um, th this massive outflow is really, you know, th this is, this, we've seen in Europe how uh, huge population movements uh, can strain uh, both the economic and physical infrastructure of a country, but also the kind of political infrastructure, if you will, right? The kind of political tolerance for inflows of people who have to be housed and supported and security has to be maintained. South America has not had to deal with a cross-border crisis of this, uh, of this kind in our lifetimes, right? I mean, the Central Americans have to deal with refugees going north through Mexico to, to the United States. But South America, a cross-border crisis of this time is really of this level and scale is really unprecedented. Um, and, uh, and it's the type of thing where it's starting to filter into, uh, into politics. The Colombian government, uh, the new Colombian government of President Duque, uh, has a number of issues to address, uh, not the least of which is how to uh, continue um, uh, um, uh, uh, pushing forward or revising the peace plan. The, infrastructure, the influx of a million Venezuelans along the border um, is, uh, is hardening opinion about uh, whether Colombia should be allowing people into the country. Uh, the Peruvians are saying the same. The Brazilians are saying the same. So this is fast becoming a political issue in South America the way it has become uh, with these Syrian and North African refugees in Europe. And that's a very new thing for South America. How much of an impact does Nicaragua have on that situation as well? Uh, Daniel Ortega led the Sandinista revolution, pushed out the long-ruling Somoza family, and now he kind of looks like the leader he ousted, doing away with presidential term limits and using a heavy hand on dissent. Uh, Nicaragua, is that all big enough to also have a destabilizing effect on Central America and perhaps even on South America? Well, well absolutely. I mean, Nicaragua uh, has been one of the most stable countries uh, in Central America. Uh, the countries uh, uh, to the north have had the, uh, horrific uh, um, uh, violence and, um, and, um, and outbound uh, migration northward from Mexico into the, into the United States. Nicaragua has been uh, politically quite stable. Um, the protests in Nicaragua have recently died down, but they're still simmering. This has been going on since April, uh, as you mentioned. It was a protest that started about a pension reform, but after the crackdown really kind of became about the illegitimacy of or Ortega's rule uh, in the country and his family's rule. It's 
horrifically nepotistic situation where he and his wife and his family run the country. Um, if there is a, a, uh, a deepening kind of political instability there, if the government falls, uh, if there's wider violence, that could provoke um, a further um, outflow of migrants from, uh, from uh, Nicaragua. It could also create a hospitable home for organized crime or narco-trafficking, which has found very comfortable environments uh, further north in Central America. Uh, so uh, Nicaragua's fate is, I think, very important, not so much tied to the Venezuela story as such, but to this broader question of weak states, uh, hospitable climates for organized crime and huge and narco-trafficking, uh, and also these, uh, these migration flows, which have continued to put pressure on, uh, on Mexico and, of course, at the southern border of the United States. Let's talk about technology, which is changing just as rapidly as geopolitical events on the ground. We've seen terrorist groups like the Islamic State leverage social media to recruit new members, but increasingly state governments are leaning on technology to spy on their citizens, with China reportedly planning to give all of its citizens a personal score based on how they behave. That score will be cobbled together using facial recognition, artificial intelligence, and smart glasses. Alex, this really seems like an authoritarian's dream. You would have thought 20 years ago that the Internet would be the great white hope of democracies, right? And that was, that was the idea, right? We would have, we, we, you would have thought 10 years ago, after looking at the, uh, or a little less than 10 years ago, watching the Arab Spring, uh, watching uh, the ways that uh, Facebook was used um, as a new kind of campaign tool by the Obama campaign in 2008, uh, all of these things suggested that social media would be a boon to democracies, bringing people together, bringing ideas together, um, um, uh, uh, and kind of uh, fostering a, a greater sense of community. Uh, actually, what's happened is that uh, social media in democracy has actually fomented more social division. Right? It has actually fomented a crisis of trust in institutions, in traditional media, in traditional political parties, in traditional political institutions. Um, whereas autocratic governments are actually making very fine use, as you mentioned, of social media as a tracking and surveillance tool, uh, particularly the Chinese, but the Russians are looking to do the same. Turkey uh, has sought to use, uh, to use social media, to shut down social media platforms as a political tool. Um, so in all of the ways that we thought, um, sort of kind of greater, trans sort of greater transparency and greater sort of community that would be created by social media, it's actually redounded chiefly to the benefit of autocracies, which are able to use the data that is part of that as a monitoring tool. Meanwhile, in democracies, uh, the kind of echo chamber effects of, uh, of social media are actually contributing to um, a social division that is, um, that is really causing sort of non-democratic uh, political forces to bubble up. That dovetails right into cyber war, you know, whether influencing other countries' elections, hacking into uh, banking systems, or disrupting power grids. The potential for disaster from a cyber conflict is growing. But unlike wars fought with bullets and bombs, there are no rules governing cyber war. How important is that? And what's the likelihood of a cyber-like Geneva Convention? Well, part of the problem with, it, with, with, with cyber is that you don't know yet what, can, you know what constitutes an act of war and what doesn't, right? As you mentioned, there, there are no rules of war for cyber the way that there are for conventional conflict. And even getting to those rules of conventional conflict took centuries of modern warfare, right? Um, we are just at the dawn of understanding how to think about cyber as a tool of war. Um, and the, the prospect of coming together 
for a convention on the rules of war for cyber, you know, if you look historically, it took huge conflicts in order to get people to come together and say, hey, we really need to work out some rules about this thing. Um, and, um, you know, I don't want to be too pessimistic, Jason, but I think, I think it, it might take a, a kind of uh, uh, some kind of much larger event where people stop and say, hey, we got to get this thing under control and, and agree to some rules uh, before people will do that. At the moment, um, all of the various cyber powers, chiefly China, the United States, Russia, Iran as well, Israel, they all have an interest in developing their tools as much as possible um, and are all kind of sort of feeling out what the limits are politically and practically about using those tools. But no one really at the moment is coming together um, to, to kind of uh, put some guardrails around that. And that's really one of, the, one of the biggest crises that I think is around the corner in the world today. One final area that I wanted to touch on, uh, just about every day there are reports about robots coming for your job, and while that may be a bit alarmist, automation is real and it's growing, especially in parts of the world where manufacturers have leaned on cheap labor. How do you see that playing out? Well, I think one of the big um, one of the big challenges is whether um, for countries that have huge youth populations, uh, developing countries chiefly with large youth populations that are looking for industrialization led growth or manufacturing led growth, the robots are really coming for them. I mean, there was a pretty um, pretty stark report by the International Labor Organization. I think it was last fall uh, that hundreds of millions of jobs are at risk of elimination by automation in. Southeast Asia, which has really kind of become the textile factory of the world. Um, the question is, what does that do in terms of political stability uh, in countries in Southeast Asia, a number of countries in Sub-Saharan Africa that are increasingly looking to, uh, to increase their manufacturing uh, exports? Um, if you have a large number of uh, young people who are having a harder and harder time finding jobs, um, that is obviously a recipe for potential political instability. Um, so the impact of automation on, uh, on, on uh, economic outcomes and on jobs in, the, in Europe and the United States is certainly something that we look at, but I would also keep a very close eye on how these things um, can affect the political stability and, um, and real kind of development path of emerging market economies or developing economies that, you know, the robots, they're in a race with the robots now, and the robots may start to win. Sounds like that could be a good terrorist recruiting tool as well. Indeed. All right. Well, so much to chew on. Alex, thank you very much for joining us on The Crisis Next Door today. Uh, we've been chatting with Alex Clement, Senior Editor of Signal, Creative Director of G Zero Media at the Eurasia Group. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.